In every generation, there are the chosen ones, the fanboys, the observers, the keepers of useless trivia. They alone must stand against the forces of television drama tropes. They are continuous play. Oh, come on. Stake through the heart, a little sunlight. It's like falling off a log. Welcome to Continuous Plays, The Art of Slaying, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer retrospective featuring Brian Thomas. Don't make fun. I worked long and hard to get this promise. And Jay Newcastle. Just because this is never going to work, there's no need to be negative. Buffy the Vampire Slayer is the copyright of Fox Television Studios and any discussion of the characters, episodes, or music is strictly for entertainment purposes only. Welcome to Continuous Plays, The Art of Slaying, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer retrospective. I'm Jay. And I'm Brian. And we are so glad you joined us on this trip through the Buffy the Vampire Slayer television series as we recap it episode by episode, a retrospective for one of the greatest shows on television. I guess to start off with, we need to talk about how we got into Buffy. Brian, how did you discover Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Well, it's actually an interesting story because I never, ever watched it when it was actually on the TV. And um, what happens is uh, I was a huge star, or I am a huge Star Wars fan, and I read the extended universe novels, and I was at work, and I always brought the novels and read them over lunch, so I never went out to lunch. And uh, one of my coworkers thought that since I was into Star Wars, that I should maybe check out Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So... I went home and asked the wife what she thought, and she wanted to see the show anyway. So we went out, bought the first season, started watching, and I was hooked on it since then. Yeah, that's that's a great thing. I I actually watched it when it was on television, but I did not pick it up when it debuted in 1997. Uh, I had good friends who were into the show, kept telling me about it, but my memory of it at that point was I had seen the movie, and I wasn't real fond of that, as as you know if you've listened to our movie review podcast of the Buffy film. And I thought, eh, I don't know. And I watched uh, part of an episode and didn't really pay attention to it. And then somewhere along in season two, when we get to that one, I'll, I'll identify the point. Uh, specifically, but I, I heard a Sarah McLaughlin song on television, and I looked at this girl and this guy staring at each other, and I thought, this looks kind of neat, and I realized I was watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and so in season two, I got into it, got hooked, and by the beginning of season three, I was dead on with it. Luckily, the show was actually in reruns and syndication at that point, so I was able to catch up on most of season one um, through that way, and then I watched it uh, until its final run at the end of season seven. So uh, that's my my experience with Buffy. I guess I've been watching it longer than than either of you, but uh, or I've been watching it longer than you. But you know, still I, I've seen it several times through. You and I've talked about this for for a long time, Brian, about wanting to do this retrospective. And I guess we should tell people kind of what we're going to do here, what what our our plans are. You know, um, we're not going to go through this thing scene by scene and stuff. If you listen to the Continuous Play podcast movie reviews, you know that's kind of what we do. We break things down in pieces and and talk about it. Well, in this, you know, we figure if you're listening to this, you're probably a Buffy fan, have seen some of this, maybe you hadn't seen every episode, but you've seen it. So we're going to give you the big plot overviews tell you everything that happens and then we're going to talk about the the important stuff that we see in each episode 
Yeah, we're we're gonna break down all the characters. We're gonna, you know, talk about any kind of uh, character development that happens. Any new characters, we'll discuss our feelings on things like that. Talk about the major themes for the show and uh, the episode itself, and uh, tell you what we think the episode really accomplished in the end of things. Because each episode is, you would hope, accomplishing something towards the whole Buffy universe. Uh, and then lastly, we'll t- we'll tell you what we think is important in this show. And what are some of the things that you should, you know, really pay attention to as we guide you through the rest of the series? And in general, we'll be going single episode by single episode. But as things happen in the Buffy universe, you may know a lot of these episodes were put together as two-parters. And sometimes they showed them in consecutive weeks. Sometimes they showed them in consecutive hours in the same week. And that is actually how they started this show was a two-hour pilot. Uh, the Really, the two-hour pilot broken into to two episodes, Welcome to the Hellmouth and The Harvest. And that's what we're going to start with tonight. We should uh, go ahead and tell you now, though, if you are a Buffy fan and you have seen the unaired Buffy pilot, Brian and I have put together a shorter episode of The Art of Slaying that reviews the unaired pilot. You can download that on our website as well, continuousplaypodcast.com slash Buffy. But before we go any further, Brian, it's time to, to give the plot overview of Welcome to the Hellmouth and The Harvest. And before we do that, Jay, I want to caution everybody as well. If you are new to Buffy and you want to kind of use this as a little guide as you're going through it, um, watch the show, then listen to the podcast and tell you what we think you should take out of it and that that's awesome but do not go back and listen to the on-air pilot until after you've gone through season one because i think uh, it's more important to get the whole uh, season one as joss whedon wanted you to see it before going and seeing what could have been <laughs> absolutely and, and understand this about the unaired pilot unlike a lot of tv shows the pilot episode was not fully produced it was just a pitch and it was never meant to for public consumption. In fact, Joss Whedon hates the thing. So it, it is it considered a DVD extra. If you're if you're renting these things and from Netflix or you buy them or, or something like that, you won't even get to see it on that thing. It's out there on, on the internet. You can find it. But like Brian says, wait until you've seen season one. Also, we'll let you know, if you're new to Buffy and you're kind of using us as a gauge, you might want to watch the episode before you listen to us talk about it because we are going to spoil them all. We talk in spoilers and backward and forward uh, continuity all the time. So just be warned that that's what's going to happen. Let's go ahead and go through the, the plot overview, though. This will suffice for Welcome to the Hellmouth and the Harvest. Buffy Summers moves with her mom to Sunnydale, California, intent on leaving her slaying ways behind her. However, it becomes evident very early that the powers that be have other plans. She befriends Xander Harris, a geek with a big heart, Willow Rosenberg, a brainy wallflower, and meets her new watcher, Mr. Giles, who is masquerading as the school librarian. With their help and the assistance of a mysterious man called Angel, Buffy and her friends thwart the efforts of a very old and powerful vampire, the Master, who is intent on rising from his trap in an interdimensional portal and opening up hell on Earth. And that's really the plot summary of Welcome to Hellmouth and the Harvest, Brian. Yeah, that's definitely the plot summary. This is this is pretty much, in a nutshell, what happens through the first two episodes Um of the show. So we're not going to go too much into the details scene by scene, but we will get details as we walk through the characters that we meet in these first two episodes. So let's start with that, Jay, and let's start obviously with the main character of the show, and that is obviously Buffy Summers. She is the vampire slayer, and we get introduced to her um, 
very early, obviously, in this movie as she's walking into school. So tell me, uh, Jay, what are your thoughts on Buffy Summers and how they portrayed her in these first two episodes? Well, you know, Buffy Summers is played by Sarah Michelle Gellar, and the first thing we see of her is is her laying in bed, presumably, you know, having a nightmare where she's seeing all these visions of vampires and stuff. That was a holdover from the film, this idea that, that uh, vampire slayers have prophetic dreams. And then she wakes up, and she looks like your typical 16-year-old high school sophomore. You know, she's young, she's perky, she's cute. Uh, well, she's beyond cute. Come on, Sarah Michelle Gellar's smoking. Uh, but but she she's beautiful and nice, and she carries herself with this sort of bouncy confidence. And, and we meet her right off, and the first thing you get off of her, unlike the Buffy movie, is you don't get Valley Girl. You just get a eh, girl from the West Coast who's pretty, but clearly has got more going on than what meets the eye. I mean, I think Sarah Michelle Gellar played her like that from the get-go, that not only is she the pretty girl, but she's got a lot of other stuff going on, and clearly we know that she's the vampire slayer, for goodness sakes. Yeah, and this is really, uh, this for these first two episodes are really her coming to terms with the fact that even though she may not want to be the slayer, it is her mm-hmm. calling, and she will have to, and even trying to run away from L.A. where she was before and coming to Sunnydale is not going to make her escape her destiny. So that's really what we're learning about Buffy Summers in these first two episodes. We should also mention at this point, we're introduced to her mother too. And it's worth noting her parents have now divorced and her mother and her have moved to Sunnydale from Los Angeles. Um, to start a new life and we meet Joyce because she's dropping Buffy off at school and they're having this conversation and and you get this feel about Joyce early on that she's very real and I had a great line you know Buffy try not to get kicked out of school today (laughs) you know because that was her fate at the end of the film was she got in so much trouble that she got kicked out of school and and they play with that throughout the first the first episode and really the first season. Yeah, they definitely do. There's more talk um, in the first season about things that may uh, kind of happen in the movie than any other season. They don't really reference it a lot later in the series, but in the first season they try to tie it together because, let's face it, it is part of the Buffy universe, and even as much as you may or may not like it, you have to kind of play around with it. The one difference, of course, that we do see between the movie and the TV series is that Buffy in the movie, I believe she's a senior, going to senior prom. Now we're putting her back a few years as she's a sophomore in this one. Yeah, and Joss Whedon has explained in in multiple interviews that the reason for that was if you're going to have a show that's centered around high school, you, you want them to have more than half a year to go to high school, you know, the, the, you get the sense that Buffy is coming in here mid-semester, if you will, or the start of the spring or something like that, and, and uh, so you want her to have a few years, so they roll the, the dial back and, and make her a sophomore. We need to talk about the, you know, one of the next characters we made who's very important in the series, Xander Harris, you know, big, tall guy riding a skateboard. He's got the 90s uh, grunge hair, I guess you'd say. Uh, he's, he's wearing the flannel, and he gets, you know, taken by Buffy, and it's like he's watching her, and all of a sudden, boom, he runs in like a, a guardrail or something. He's not paying attention to where he's going, and it tells you everything you need to know about this guy immediately. He looks like he could, you know, play on the football team, but he, he's a total spazoid, and he, he has such good delivery and such good lines. Nicholas Brendan, who plays him, I, I just, I took him immediately 
when I started watching the show and then when I went back and sort of saw the character evolution, it, it, he's so fun and so neat to, to watch. And, and they get to him very quickly in, in the first episode. Yeah, he comes off as uh, very inadequate about himself. Uh, mm-hmm. He's unsure of his role and everything, and you get that very early on, especially once uh, they find out what Buffy is. And Xander is the one who actually finds out that Buffy is a slayer, as he overhears in the library, her and Giles talking about it. And so yeah. as he kind of learns that, and Willow, who we'll talk about next, kind of gets a role in the gang, Xander's kind of feeling left out, inadequate, and not knowing what his role is. So he's trying to kind of find it. And that's kind of the character we're seeing in these first two episodes is, is a guy who, who wants to help, but doesn't know how to help. You brought her up. Willow Rosenberg. We meet her almost immediately after Xander, you know, he chases her down. And he's like, you know, please be my study buddy. She's, she's like I said, the brainy wallflower of the group. And, you know, it's it's funny to note, you know, Allison Hannigan is supposed to be playing a nerd here or whatever, but she's still pretty darn cute for a nerd. Oh, absolutely. Uh, she definitely is trying to bear, is playing the nerd, the computer geek uh, in the group, the, the know-it-all who isn't trying to, you know, she's not like the know-it-all who's putting it out there. She just knows. Hmm. She's the know-it-all who actually knows it all. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, and very, very cute little girl. Um but awesome, awesome I, I, character, I you, think. You say little girl. It's funny to note she's actually like the oldest one of the gang right here. I think she's 24 when this was shot. So she's older than both Sarah and, and Nick Brendan, which is kind of humorous to, to think about. But she does look much younger, yeah. And she always has good lines and good delivery, too. There's good chemistry between her and Xander and, and even uh, Buffy early on in, in this, uh, in this uh, show. Yeah, they have very good chemistry, and she even has really good chemistry with Mr. Giles, which comes into play uh, in the second half of this uh, pilot in the, as they're researching what the harvest is and um, what the Hellmouth is to an extent as well. And they have really good chemistry together too, and they'll actually end up working a lot together in this series. And he's a guy, um, Giles is a guy that we get introduced to here, and he's the one that's, I guess he's kind of like the spy role at this point. You know, he's masquerading as the school librarian. He, you know, Willow describes him as he, he was the curator at maybe the British Museum, but he, he's brought all this stuff with him. And, and you realize later on the reason he brought material with him is he is the watcher. And in the world of slayers and watchers, you know, that they have this, he and Buffy have this great go back and forth about, you know, what, what does a slayer do? What does a watcher do? And he, he explains to the audience and, of course, to her what a slayer is, you know. And every generation, there's a girl born who's tasked with fighting the demons, the vampires of the world, and the Watcher protects her and trains her and prepares her. And, you know, of course, she's already had a Watcher and had a Watcher die in Los Angeles. They they keep the continuity from what was you know happening in that film without referencing it a ton directly. And she kind of throws it back at him, like, you know, go ahead and prepare me for, you know, having to lose all my friends and getting beat up all the time and losing people who care about me. I thought that was a great go back and forth. And you talk about chemistry. He and and, uh, Tony Head and and Sarah Michelle Gellar really had good chemistry from the get-go. There's that moment when she walks in the library to get a history book after a class. And he says, oh, are you Miss Summers? And he wheels around and, bam, lays that vampire book on her. And she's like, no, I don't want anything to do with that. But it's all through looks and the way he looks at her and she looks at him. I I really was taken by that. Yeah, he was the perfect 
person to play the Watcher character, I think. Uh, you know, we, we were used to, um, Donald Sutherland's character. And while, he, while oh. Giles has a lot of the same kind of quirks that the Donald Sutherland character had, Merrick, in the movie, he's a different character. And thank God for that. But, uh, I really enjoy how they're building up Giles, especially in the first, say, three or four episodes of the first season, because they really, he knows a lot about this stuff and he's trying to pass that knowledge on and it's just a real cool dynamic. Uh, he doesn't have exactly the greatest, um, communication skills for the kids, <laughs> I guess, but he's trying his best to kind of teach them without sounding too pretentious, maybe. Well, you know, that's the thing I liked about this, too, is it, and we'll talk about it, you know, through the, the next hundred and something episodes we do here, Brian, but the, the dialogue on this show and the writing on this show is often what gets praised about it. And a lot of it is in how realistic most of it is. You know, the teenagers talk like teenagers, at least teenagers of the day for the most part, except that they talk about vampires and stuff like that. And they'll even reference that a few times. He talks like an adult who's trying to relate to kids, but doesn't get their humor, doesn't get what they're all about, you know. And when he tries, it sounds really false and fake, like it would in real life. Yeah, it totally, that's that's almost hitting the nail on the head, I think. You know, he wants to be able to communicate to these people, but they speak in a language. Not only is he British talking to Americans, and they that's already a communication difference right there, but now he's talking to, you know, 16-year-old kids or 15-year-old kids, and it's a completely different language to him. He doesn't even know how to relate. And you'll see that uh, later when he kind of meets, you know, Jenny Callender. He has much better ease with talking to her than he does with these kids. Exactly. And, and you know, we, we start introducing more of the characters. We should talk about Cordelia Chase, who in Buffy lore and, and in the show Angel, of course, is a very big, big part of that. But early on, she's your typical mean girl in high school. She's gorgeous. She has her little group of followers that go around with her. And she's the one who befriends Buffy immediately because... In a normal world, those two girls would be friends, right? They might be rivals in some ways, but they would probably be buddies. And you get the feeling that that's the world Buffy came from, you know? And Cordelia gets these great lines where she's like, let me give you the test to see if you're cool. You're from L.A., you can skip the written. And then she asks, you know, about James uh, Spader, which apparently he was sexy at one time, and I think John Tesh was the devil. And it's real funny, you know? They have this great little back and forth, but... I, I really liked how they introduced her because at, at this point you've, you've got you, your nerd guy, your nerd girl, you've got Buffy who obviously is special. Now we're going to give you somebody who is a real high school girl, even though Charisma Carpenter is clearly not 16 in this. I didn't go to school with anybody that looked like that. Uh, but, you know, and I, you probably didn't either. But she really plays the part well. And it's worth noting she originally tried out for Buffy, and Sarah Michelle Gellar originally had the role of Cordelia. So you get to see those reversed is kind of neat. Yeah, it's definitely pretty cool. And she does, her character development is really good in this because she does come off, as you said, she's the mean girl of the group. She's also the gossip girl of the of the show. And you see that in these first two episodes very quickly as she's talking about, you know, the dead guy in the locker room. And also then uh spreading rumors about Buffy in the computer class when they're doing their stuff and uh how she's all weird and all this other stuff. So she's the gossip girl, she's the cool girl, I guess you can call it the mean girl. Um 
very high on herself. It's an, it's a very good character. And I think everyone who's ever gone to high school can relate her to someone in their class. I, I'm almost 100% positive everyone knows someone who is a part of that. You know, we, we talked a lot about the kids and stuff, Brian. We talked about the, you know, the one real authority figure so far that we've met is, is uh, Mr. Giles. And we talked a little bit about Buffy's mom. We'll come back to her in a minute. But we've got to talk about Principal Flutie, uh, played by Ken Lehrer here. Uh, you know, he has a great opening scene. He's meeting with Buffy, and he's telling her, students who transfer here, Buffy, have a clean slate, and he's tearing up her transcript. And then he lays that whole, unless you burn the gym down, you know, which, by the way, is a, is a bit of a retcon. There's, that didn't happen in the movie. And, uh, Brian, I think you've read the comic that the script's based on, too. That's not part of that either, is it? No, I, I don't recall that at all being a part of it. The comic really ends the similar way to the movie in the fact that uh, they get rid of uh, the main vampire, uh, Lothos, and then... Yeah her and Pike ride off into the sunset, basically. So, yeah, I don't recall that burning there as well. So they kind of inserted that into the Buffy television series, I guess. Yeah, Flutie is, is telling her that, and she's sitting there, you know, trying to justify it to him, and she almost lets it slip. Look, that gym was full of vampire asbestos, you know? Yep. And he starts taping her transcript back together. It's like... Uh, and she said, look, I know my transcripts are colorful. He's like, do you think that's a word you would use to describe this? And he had such good – he he portrayed authority figures as most of us saw him in high school. Look, if we're honest, I don't care if you, if you loved your principal or not, okay? Most of us thought the same thing about him. This guy doesn't know anything about me. He doesn't want to know anything about me. He just wants me to stay out of his way, and I just assume stay out of his too. Absolutely. And I really enjoy the character of Principal Flutie early on because he's he's there for, um, I guess, comedic relief. There's a lot of comedic relief in this show, but he he's pretty much all comedic relief. Any scene that he's in is there's something funny about it. And it's a good little break from everything uh, serious to get into. So I really like how they've done Principal Flutie in this this series uh, because it's just I don't know. I, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. It, it's well done. Well, well, he's he's only you know he's only in a few scenes or whatever. And there's another part where Buffy's you know going off to to chase some of the vampires down in the sewer, and he stops her. He's like, "We're not skipping school on our second day, are we?" You know, and he gives her this talking at her speech, is what my wife called it when we were watching it. And I said, "That's exactly how principals talk to yeah. you, though. They're they're condescending, but in a nice way. He's not trying to be a jerk. He just." Again, unlike Giles, he's not trying to communicate on her level. He doesn't care. He just doesn't want any problems. Stay in school. You know, that that's his whole thing. And, and it's neat to watch his character as it lasts because then, and we'll go ahead and say it now, when the next principal comes around who lasts a long time in, in the series, it's, it's a drastic change, yeah. but it's an evolution that works from the way Flutie plays. Absolutely. Going back to Joyce, uh, there's a couple things here. Uh, obviously... She's Buffy's mother, and she's introduced as Buffy's mother, concerned about her daughter because she was obviously kicked out of her last school, and they had to move here to, you know, put her in a school that was good enough to get her a good education, okay? So we learned that early on. But the thing that really bugs me about how they built Joyce, and I know you uh, uh, have different feelings on this, but to me, they make her seem like she's a really pathetic parent. Because she's always talking about how she's consulting the books on parenting when she's talking with Buffy. The books tell me this. The books say I shouldn't do that. The books tell me I need to say no. You know, things like that. And 
that really kind of drove me crazy about her. And maybe it's because I know how Joyce's character evolves throughout the series that when I go back and watch it now again from the start, it kind of, that's not the Joyce I know, you know, but she really comes off as a really poor parent at the beginning of this series. And these first two episodes show that I think very well. Well, I, I wouldn't disagree with, with your take on it. I think you're right about that. Here's my defense of that, okay? It's twofold. One, we got to remember who this, where this character is in her own life. She's coming off of a divorce. Her daughter's been in trouble. They've had to leave town, and they've come here, and as it's revealed later on, they had to move here because it was the only school that would accept Buffy, you know, and, and with her colorful transcripts. So they've they've come here. She's trying to start her own business up. She runs an art gallery, apparently. Um, and she's going through a lot of things in her own life. Secondly, remember the time, Brian. We're talking about the, the early to mid-'90s. And that's uh, this was made in 1997, but it, it's reflective of that mid-'90s time. Pop psychology and pop parent psychology was huge during this time, man. It was a new book every other day. I mean, they've got different ones now. They've kind of shifted focus, but that's a reflection of the times, and, and it does make her look pathetic. And I'll, I'll tell you right now, I think that was Joss Whedon's purpose. She wasn't going to be useless like Buffy's parents were in the Buffy movie, where they're just there as kind of eye candy, and they're just gone. You know, they're, they're not, in, not around. She's going to be there, but she herself doesn't know who she is anymore what she's going on and, and you know we'll talk about it too throughout this first season especially but there's a there's kind of a common neurosis and psychosis in Sunnydale from the adults that they just kind of turn a blind eye to the the very blatant weird stuff that's happening and you know we've we've been asked the question by I've been asked the question by non-Buffy fans sometimes who start watching this thing and go you know how can they not know that their kids are involved in this stuff. And I'm like, you know, sometimes parents just turn the blind eye. So I think Joss wrote her, I think Joss wrote her as this pathetic searching character early on. And I like you, I like the way she evolves through the series. She's a little annoying early on, but she's not on the screen a lot early either. They don't start using her really until the second season comes around. Right. Right. Valid points. And, and you make a, a really good point about the fact that back in 1997, when this was actually filmed, that was, the way the world was in parenting, you know, people were coming from the strict parenting that maybe you and I went through when we were kids to the, yeah. I need to be your friend parenting that we see a lot. That's, I think, you know, finally going away. But, uh, that was the time that it was kind of switching over from that. I need to be your friend or, you know, I'm a, str- I'm your parent. I need to put my foot down to the, I want to be your friend parenting. And yeah. so, yes, there were a lot of books on that. So. That's a valid point. That's something I overlooked and makes sense now. Um, we, we've talked about, I guess, all of the good <laughs> characters so far. And I don't mean good as in quality. This is called Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I guess we should talk about the vampires, Brian. Yeah, they're very important here, obviously. <laughs> uh, yeah. That, oh, yeah. That's the name of the show. But uh, we meet the main vampire very early in the show, and that is the Master. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the Master until part two of this two-parter, in which Giles finds out a lot more and uh, gives us a real good history lesson on the history of Sunnydale and about how this vampire known as the master came to be and how we find out why he's kind of cursed because he's cursed right now 
in he's stuck in an area he can't get out he can't reach the real world even though everyone who's around him can he's stuck in a, a very small area that he can't escape and there yeah he was he was, we should we should say and and as part of this and in that explanation is probably the greatest plot device invented in in modern television history and especially for this show that's the idea of the hellmouth and we'll get into more detail of it later but it's basically a portal between the underworld where all the demons live and the the physical world and the master at some point in the 1800s was trying to open that up and an earthquake occurred and he got swallowed in between portals, so he's sort of stuck in this invisible wall, and it just so happens that he's stuck inside of an old church, too. It's a neat little trope that they throw in there. It's kind of funny. Absolutely. Uh, nothing says vampire more than being stuck in a church. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and he even talks about that, too. He said, I'm, I'm stuck in this place of, of worship, and I mean, he's just so disgusted with it. And, and it, The Master's played by Mark Metcalf. A lot of people might know him, if you remember Animal House, the guy that was the ROTC leader. Where's that a pinch pin you have on you, that guy. And he's also the dad from the Twisted Sister videos, if you remember those from the 1980s. But I'm sure he's done more, but that's all I can remember about him right now. Yeah. But he, he he's an interesting guy immediately. I mean, when you first saw him, Brian, what did you think of him? Because it didn't look like any vampire I had ever seen. No, absolutely not. I mean, he's uh, he's a hideous-looking vampire. They made him look really good because he's supposed to be this old vampire. Well, he definitely looks like he's an old vampire, right? Um, unlike mm-hmm. uh, the Lothos character, who is also supposed to be an old vampire, this guy looks like he's an old vampire, and I like that about him as well. Um, he He's very witty. Uh, he yeah. has some good sense of humor uh, when he's talking to some of his minions, which I think is is funny. (laughs) And he just comes off as a guy who's just annoyed at the world and wants to get out and destroy it. Yeah, totally. And he looks almost like a bat, you know, and he's the, he's, He's one of the vampires we never see phase between regular face and what we call vamp face on on the Buffy show, you know, and uh, that's a unique characteristic. It gives him a a menacing presence all the time, even though he has some really witty dialogue and is really funny. And you mentioned his minions. There's two of them that I guess are more important than maybe the others at this point. And the the big one, and then the girl, and, and let's talk about the girl because she's introduced first. You know, the opening scene of this is a, a guy and a girl break into the high school to presumably go make out or whatever, and the, they hear a noise, and the girl's like, "What is it?" And the guy's trying to spook her, and then all of a sudden she wheels around on him, and she's the vampire, and she kills him. Right. You know, and and his body's later discovered. That's what gets Buffy in the mode of of slaying again, basically. But this girl is her name is Darla. And um, she is, she looks almost like if Buffy were going to be a vampire, it would be this girl. And, and Darla, of course, is played by Julie Benz, who's a very talented actress. And most recently has been in some some film roles that really brought her some notoriety. She was in the latest Rambo film and a couple of other things. She's a really good actress. But Her biggest thing pl- now has been uh, she was in that Dexter. She was the wife of Dexter yeah, yeah. on HBO. So people will know That's her. That's right, that. yeah. Yeah, yeah. If if you've seen that show, then you've seen her. But this, you know, she's really good in this too. And she plays a. We don't know a lot about her from these first two episodes. We learn more of it later on. But she is one of the master's closest trusted appointees, if you will. You know, he has to send these vampires out to essentially bring him food in the form of other people. And ultimately, the harvest is all about. He's going to mark one of them in a way that when they feed, he gets strength. You know, and. 
it, you get the idea that she would be one of his closest confidants. Yes, definitely. And um, she is very, very important to the Buffy and Angel, mostly the Angel series later, later on. And this is a very small introduction. Not sure if they really had a major role played out for her at this point, but... She's introduced here. She's a big part of his group. There's another vampire, too, other than the one we'll talk about later, and I can't remember what his name was. I think it's Thomas. Yeah, I think you're right. Okay. Yeah, He's not as big of a, a point in this uh, opening segment, but she, her and Thomas sent, are sent out to do a lot of the dirty work for the Master as well. So Darla is a huge character who who may not seem like it right now, but we will see in the future that she has a big role. Yes, and and she in particular takes uh, takes a particular interest in one of the characters we're introduced to, a kid named Jesse, who is played by Eric Balfour. You're supposed to believe Jesse's going to be part of the main group. It doesn't really come off as such, and and ultimately he is disposed of in a way that, well, I mean they never talk about him again ever, you know. So, but he's a big part of this first story, you know. But she's sort of the thing that turns him into what he becomes as a vampire later on. But uh, you know, she she has a way about her because she uses her looks as a way to lure men in. And as you learn more about this Darla character, believe me, we'll talk a lot about that in the future. But she's really neat. And and, and again, she plays against stereotypes. She's the pretty girl. She's the blonde girl, but she's actually the thing that goes bump in the night, you right. know, which is sort of a, a flip on the head. I mean, the whole show is is the the idea of the pretty girl walks down the alley, and not only can she handle herself, but the thing that's chasing her is scared of her, and that's Buffy. You know, right, we got to talk about the other big important vampire here, though, Brian. It's a vampire named Luke, and. They got a guy named Brian Thompson to play him, and, and he's in one of my favorite action films of the 80s. He's in a film with Sylvester Stallone called Cobra. He's this twisted serial killer, and I mean, he's he's a hulk of a man. He, he's built like a fridge, but he's got this big square jaw and this broad shoulders. And Luke also never phases out a vampire face, and we get the sense that he's really old, too, and he's been a, a confidant and a... Uh, one of the minions of the master for many, many decades, uh, maybe even centuries. And he is tough as nails. And he always talks in this sort of pseudo scripture and it's, it's reverential and it makes him scary because he never yells. He never raises his voice. Really. He's got this deep hulking voice and it just fits his character. I mean, he, he is a scary looking thing on the screen, especially compared to Sarah Michelle Geller, who in life is only about five foot one, five, two, and maybe 110 pounds. <laughs> Soaking wet. <You> know. <laughs> yeah. I like the Luke character. Um, it's kind of sad that he doesn't last very long, but uh, <laughs> he's very interesting. He looks like the Incredible Hulk as a vampire. I mean, really big, brute guy. Uh, someone call. you would not want to mess with if you saw him in a, in a dark alley, aside from the vampire thing. <laughs> so, yeah. And he's a really, really interesting character because not only is he – he's pretty much like the general uh, in the group, he's the leader. He t he can give orders for the master. He's he's called the vessel in the harvest, which is basically the one who will feed, and anything that he eats, the master will eat as well, and will help him get out. So a very very cool, interesting character as a vampire. He's also funny. He's got some good lines mm -hmm. that he uses. Oh, yeah. And, you know, like you said, he talks in the scripture like he's a holier-than-thou character, and I find that very humorous for a vampire. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, and I think you hit the nail on the head. He's the Incredible Hulk as a vampire. That's exactly what he looks like. He looks like Lou Ferrigno. Yep. We need to talk about Angel, too, oh, by yes, the way. Yes. We, we sort of left him. Uh, you know, we, uh, well, let's slip it in like that. That'll, that'll be kind of natural. Well, you know, Brian, there's somebody we almost forgot here. and We need to mention it because this guy is a major player in the Buffy universe. And we first meet him in a dark alley when he's following Buffy and she sort of turns the tables on him. And he gives her some sort of cryptic advice and gives her this, you know, cross and says, don't ever turn your back on this, you know, and, and ultimately helps her guide, guide her through the sewers to find the, the the vampires that are holding her friend and stuff like that. And that's the character Angel, um, played by David Boreanaz. People know him from you know various films and he's, he's in the show Bones that's on now, big hit uh, for him. Clearly was the star of the show Angel, too. But this is our first introduction to him. And, uh, you know, he comes off as this sort of suave, debonair, kind of wisecracker, too. But there's clearly something else going on with this guy. Yeah, and in these first two episodes, you don't know a whole lot about Angel. You kind of get a feeling that he's there to help, but you're not quite sure. He's given her advice, and yeah. it almost seems like he's sending her into danger every time just to mm-hmm. either kill her or test her. You don't know. He's very mysterious at this point. He doesn't say a whole lot. And like you said, when it, whatever he says is very cryptic. Like he's trying to you know, give her a hint, but he doesn't want to flat out say it, which is, is an interesting thing as well. So um, at first you're kind of left wondering, uh, what the hell was that? You know, you're yeah. not sure what to think of it. He's very mysterious. He doesn't really say a whole lot. He doesn't say who he is or what side he's on. And then in uh, The Harvest, he kind of says, you know, he gives you a little more clues to who he is. He he tells you that, you know, they don't want me down there. They're not very happy with me. They don't like me. Things like that. They start to come out, and you're kind of left wondering, you know, what the heck. And obviously he's a vampire, and you get that from the first thing he says is, don't worry, I don't bite, right? Yeah, and, and that's kind of a real funny little pun there, you know, because once it's revealed he is a vampire, it, and we learn that. Now, that's kind of meta-knowledge, too. I guess we, we shouldn't try to be so cryptic with it, but, he, it, you know, that that's a funny line. It, they also have a lot of chemistry with him and Buffy, and, and that's clearly going to be an important role Um or he's going to play an important role for her. But you're right. Here, he is just a messenger, yep. really. And, and what's funny is in some of the some of the back and forth with her, uh, especially at the, the mausoleum where he's trying to tell her how to get there, she gives him you know kind of a smart response and, and kind of steps on his feelings a little bit. And he gets this look on his face like you know, he's genuinely sort of touched and hurt by what she said. And she's like, I, I didn't really mean to sort of stomp on you there, pal. You know, and he... That's when he turns into immediate, you know, instruction modes like, you know, turn left by the school and say hey to Bugs Bunny on your way to Albuquerque and, you know, whatever <laughs> to, to get her where she's going. But, but yeah, he's there to sort of, you don't know what his motives are yet. And that, that plays out later. But we need to mention the guy because he, uh, he is a major part of, of what goes on in, on this show. But you know, they introduce him early on, too. I mean, this first hour, you know, Welcome to the Hellmouth is really a big setup. It's a lot of exposition. It's a lot of character moments. They're trying to give you who everybody is before we start putting people in peril. And then the harvest is really more about the vampires and the master and, and ultimately Buffy's plan and, and to thwart them on, on the night of the harvest. Yeah. And, and it is Angel who reveals to her that the, you know, he tells her about the harvest. She tells that to Giles and Giles through his research realizes, well, this is what the master is. And here's the history of Sunnydale. And, you know, here's the harvest and the harvest is, you know, he's going to rise 
laws when they kill so many people and, and stuff like that. And it's uh, it's a really really neat uh, neat way they weave all these characters together. Yeah, and I really like the the way they build the dy- dynamic of the group. Um, you know, basically Xander finds out by accident. He then confronts Buffy. Then she's kind of like taken aback like everybody seems to know who she is she doesn't know what's going on here yeah and you know did they put up a billboard exactly (laughs) willow and xander kind of get make their way into that and at first buffy and giles are you know skeptical and don't want them to be part of the group but they insist so they keep coming in and it really shows a good dynamic being built between the core group which is willow xander buffy and giles and I really enjoyed that. Well, and you and I, when we get into the harvest, you really start to see that as they're all together trying to figure out what's going on. And we should say they have a genuine motive to want to help. One of their friends, Jesse, the, the character Eric Balfour plays, gets kidnapped by the the vampires, uh, Darla and Thomas and, and Luke, during a during a fight near the end of Welcome to Hellmouth, and they want to go rescue their bud. You know, he's their friend. They keep going, oh, Jesse's my bud. I got to go help him. And Buffy and Giles are like, you know, there are no Slayerettes. It's just you, you know, it's just the Slayer. I admit, you guys are just you guys, and stay out of it. And you know, and they're the ones like, should we call the police? And I'm like, yes, and they believe us, yeah. you know. But they are also, you know, they accept the premise pretty quickly because they've seen it with their own eyes. You know, they didn't have to be convinced of it; they saw it. But yeah, it is neat how they work the, themselves into the the group and, and work out. And you know, this show we spent a long time talking about characters here, Brian. This show is really a, a lot. It is a character driven show through. Yes, through. absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah. now we've gotten through pretty much all the principal characters that we're going to go. Let's talk about some of the themes that this two-part show really sets up. Uh, obviously, the yeah. the main theme, and really the main theme throughout the first three years is, hey, high school is hell. Yeah, and not only is high school hell in the figurative sense, but what if your high school was actually on a portal to hell? Exactly. exactly. You know? And I called it the greatest plot device in modern television, and certainly on this show, at the, at the very least. And that's and they they you know set it up through great exposition. You know what the hell mouth is. I mean, it's it's a gateway to the other world, this this other dimension. And Giles tells this history of Sunnydale, really the history of the world that you know it was populated by the old ones, and and that's a term that gets used a lot in the Buffy verse, the Buffy universe here. Uh, but these old demons and the last pure demon on earth fed on a human and they mixed their blood and that created vampires and they created more and they ate some people and created more and it just spawned more and more and more and there's there's all these demons but because sunnydale is on a hell mouth it's i think giles uses the the phrase it's a a center of mystical convergence you know we have no idea what may come about and and it's from a plot point of view it's an easy excuse to always have something going on right but it's also a good metaphor for you know, the the, the soul crushing thing that is high school. Absolutely, it's a it's awesome the way it looks in because as yeah. a, a kid um, or even now as an adult, as you watch back, it really helps you think back to some of those high school memories that you had, and it it really brings it closer to home because you've been through some of the things that these kids are going through, and you know, obviously not the vampire stuff, but the other stuff in the school, and I really like that dynamic about this this show. 
Oh, absolutely. Another thing that's set up here early on, and we've touched on it a bit with how Willow and Xander become part of the, the group, but it's the the isolation of Slayer's versus Buffy and her closest confidants. You know, we, we're told early on by Giles that it's it's basically the Watcher and the Slayer. You know, they're the, the tag team of this group, and it's very much teacher-student. But you get early on, or at least I did from them, that this was going to go way beyond that, that he was going to be very much a father figure to her. And that, I'll tell you where I got that the first time was when she's throwing all that stuff back in his face about, you know, go ahead, prepare me, you know, to deal with all this sorry stuff. And he doesn't have an answer for it, you know, because a lot of times your folks didn't have an answer for all the stuff you were going through when you were 16. Absolutely. And I like that theme, too, because in the past, that's what, like you said, that's what it was. The Slayer didn't say who she was. People, The only people who knew who the Slayer were was with the vampire she was fighting and the Watcher who was watching her, and obviously her. Uh, and this has all changed with Buffy. Um, she invites people who shouldn't probably be in the gang into the gang. And, you know, eventually more people then learn who she is uh, to the point where pretty much I think the whole school ends up knowing at some point. But, uh it, it's yeah. a really cool dynamic and a good theme uh, for the show as well because it'll come back over and over again how Buffy should be doing this all alone. But thankfully for her, she's got these friends who are there to help. And I think that's one of the reasons she's able to then survive longer than most slayers do. You know, Buffy even plays with that from the get-go that you know, I'm going alone and she goes after Jesse in the sewers and who pops up around a dark corner? Xander, you know, who she pretty much, you know, uh, forbid him to do anything to help her. And he's, you know, beats himself up like I'm less than man. I can do nothing. Willow in the meanwhile is, you know, helping Giles do research and stuff. Xander goes and helps her and she lets him tag yeah. along. And I thought that was great. We need to also talk about what you know, Slayer powers and stuff, because clearly Buffy can do things other people her age can't. You know, we get a sense of her strength early on. She breaks open a locked door to see the dead body in the gym, which, by the way, that's the worst secured crime scene <laughs> ever. They get everybody out of there and leave the dead body. But Fantastic. Whatever. You, know, you think they got down the road? Yeah, you think they got halfway down the road? Like, Jim, we left the body. <laughs> you know? But uh, anyway, uh, you know, there's that. And then, you know, that, that part where Principal Flutie's telling her, you know, you're not going to skip school, are you? And he walks off, and she does like this, you know, imitated backflip over the fence to get out of school. Clearly, Slayers have heightened strength, but she's also got this heightened awareness, too. We talked about in the movie, they kind of awkwardly portrayed that around the menstrual cycle. Thank God they dropped that in this. That would have been so lame to, to bring up. And I don't know that you could have done it on television, even even in 1997 at that point. But they, they do give you a sense that Buffy can sense when dangerous things are around either through her dreams or just through her kind of tingly sense. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure that they could have done the whole cramp thing on TV because this is the era when, you know, uh, David and Donna are discussing having sex for the first time on 90210, and that was a huge deal. So if they can discuss having sex on 90210, they could probably fill in a little menstrual cycle thing. But agreed. Thank God they decided not to do that because that was absolutely lame and having her have a sighten or a heightened sense of awareness when vampires are around i think is a much cooler uh power than uh ouch my crotch hurts thing yeah uh, yeah exactly it, uh, much cooler we, we should talk too about 
vampires in Buffy versus vampires elsewhere. I mean, I don't know how big you were into vampires, Brian. I was myself not a connoisseur, but I was a big Dracula fan. I had, I think at that point I had probably read the book and, and I'd of course seen multiple iterations of that film and had seen vampires portrayed in a lot of ways. I, I want to say I'd seen Nosferatu at that point too. So vampires in Buffy versus vampires elsewhere. I mean, they have fangs. They do have some strength. Uh, there's a joke that you know they do all know kung fu amazingly, um, <laughs> which is kind of a running thing throughout this show. Uh, but um, but they they're they're different than maybe vampires we see elsewhere. You know they they can still be killed all the same ways: garlic, beheading, uh, stake through the heart, sunlight, holy water. Uh, and in fact, we see almost all of those used as a way to take out a vamp in, in this first uh, two episodes. Uh, I think one of the coolest was when Buffy grabs a symbol off a drum kit and beheads yep. a vampire. That is an awesome shot. Even though we don't really see it, it's all implied, but it's just so cool. Uh, you know, th- there's all those things, but they also react differently. I mean, we they talk about the, their fighting skills. She's aware of them. They're very aware of her. And, and you get this idea that there's a shared history of the Slayers and the vampires that we're going to get clued in on as this show goes on. Let's face it. Vampires, up until this point, had as very romantic characters. And the reality of the, of the matter is, is vampires are what? They're demons. And demons are not romantic. Demons are evil. And finally, somebody had the balls to make vampires look and feel evil. And that's what I like about the vampires in Buffy, is they look like they could do some major damage to you. But they're also not one-dimensionally evil. You know, that they have complexities. We talked about how the Master had a lot of witty banner and was really smart, how Darla and Luke reacted. Even some of the throwaway vampires in this episode, they have personality. And I really like that. I like the fact that they... That these were once humans who are now invaded by the their soul is taken away when you become a vampire. They explain all this. Giles goes through all this thing. Your soul is taken away, and then the the demon essentially inhabits your body, and by drinking blood, sort of keeps your your body alive. But you don't. Your soul is gone, but it can still react like you. It's almost like it takes on your memories and your habits and proclivities you know that the thomas vampire the way buffy identifies him you know giles has given her this whole bit about you got to be able to hone in on vampires and she goes that one right there and she's like he's like well how do you know that and you know she says well his outfit's like carbon dated <laughs> you know she picks him out by his fashion but he clearly you know became a vampire in the don johnson <laughs> 80s you know and and he holds on to that I, I, I love how these vampires hold on to personality characteristics. I mean, look at Darla. She dresses like a schoolgirl, you know, and she's gorgeous, you know. That, that, that's alluring to men, and, and that's sort of her victims are men, generally. So I, I don't know what the master was going for with the hell-bent for leather thing, you know, Judas Priest. Maybe he, he bumped into them somewhere <laughs> in the 70s. I don't know. But, but, but I mean, that, that's sort of what I got off of him. But, you know, it, they have personality, and I think you, you hit the nail on the head. These are demons who are evil, who can mess you up, but they're also not just evil for evil's sake. They've got motives and they've got plans. And you know, isn't that the the big problem in a lot of horror films, Brian? Is that at some point you just start going, "What's Jason's plan? What's Freddy's plan? Mm-hmm. Why do they even have a plan? It makes no sense, right?" These vampires, especially the important ones always have a plan and it's, it's usually pretty complex and, and a neat one yeah, too i agree i definitely prefer this vampire to a you know dracula vampire so 
Yeah. Well, you know, we, we, we've talked about the master. He's not only the evil of this episode, which is, you know, each episode, ha- some of them are very standalone and, and they deal with a certain problem and it, you know, it's, a, a, it, it's just that problem. And then some episodes in Buffy are moving the story arc along of what we call the big bad. That's what it's, it's known in Buffy, Buffy land is the, the big evil for the season, the big problem. And it, the big one here is the master and this idea that he is going to rise and bring about, I guess, Armageddon essentially by unleashing all this holy, unholy hell on the world through Sunnydale, California. Yeah. It, it's uh, established very early that this guy is the one to pay attention to. Uh, they do go off on tangents, like you said, uh, in different episodes where you don't really see a whole lot of the master and his plan in it. It's just kind of a different, uh, bad for that episode type thing. Uh, but mm-hmm. this guy is the one who keeps coming back throughout the season and he's the one that ultimately Buffy must defeat in order to save the world. So, um, I like this character, the master. I think he, he plays well. He, um, comes off as someone who could be potentially very dangerous if he were to get out, which I like a lot too. And, um, he fits the whole concept of what the big bad should be for a vampire slayer. Well, yeah, the, one of the, one of my favorite scenes of his is in the harvest. It, it, you know, they, they're supposed to be bringing him food and these vampires have failed. And this one says, now he's talking to this one and he's dressing him down. And he said, now say you're sorry. And the guy says, I'm sorry. I failed you master. And all this stuff. And he said, that's fine. Oh, hold on a minute. And then you just see his finger jam forward and you hear thwack. And he's like, you've got something in your eye. And you realize how sadistic this guy is. Yeah. He's just. Oh, he just oozes that evil. What about the concept of the big bad? You know, that's something we'll we'll visit a lot as we talk about each of these seasons, Brian. But I liked this this sort of running theme that we know very early on in Buffy. This is the thing we're going to deal with this season, at least in this first season. We knew very early this is who we're going to deal with, and and we get to follow that guy. And I'll tell you, in the coming episodes when they don't really feature him or talk about him, I'm always wondering. What's going on with the master? What is he doing? It, it's a great, uh, a great little plot device that, that always keeps you hooked. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is very key because if you you watch a TV series, there has to be a point to the whole season. Otherwise, it's just episode after episode for no reason. And there are TV series out there that do do that, where they just every every episode's like a new season. It's just a new new episode doesn't have continuity. This puts the continuity in the show. And I think what you'll notice as we go through this season is that the shows where the big bad isn't focused on are really the shows that aren't as good. You know, it, yeah. it kind of loses you. It's just kind of like they had nothing to go with at this point, so they're just going to throw a random episode in there. Um, and while they may do some character development in some of these episodes, you don't get to the sense that they really belong because they're not chasing after the big bad. I love the big bad idea because it really makes a season worth watching every episode. So I like that. And I mean, if you look at all of Joss Whedon's uh, work uh, from Buffy up, everything has that kind of element where this is what we have to defeat to finish the season out. And I like that a lot. Yeah. And that's, and that's nothing new that's been created by him or, or, or Mutant Enemy, his team here. It's just the idea of the big story arc. I mean, shows have done it for everybody. You know, shoot, uh, Dallas made a living off of who shot Jr. Yeah. twice. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean that that's that same kind of thing. And I think you're you're dead on in this first season, especially 
they're finding their feet not only as characters and actors, but as writers and producers and too. You know, they're figuring this thing out. It's really in the second season that they figure out how to work an arc for for a long time and really stretch it out. And, and ultimately, they they have a couple of seasons where it's it's the entire season and this is a huge arc and it works so well. We, we'll get to those though when we get to them. It we get to the end of this thing. I mean, it, there's some some great moments. We've we've assembled the gang. Buffy and the gang realize they've got to take on the vessel and these vampires who all converge on the bronze, which we didn't talk about the bronze bronze, but that's kind of the cool hangout for all the kids. It's one of the places that we're going to see these people. It's the, sort of their social environment, if you will. They've trapped all these people in there. They're going to try to, they're, they're eating three or four. The master's getting stronger and stronger and Buffy and the gang show up. And while the gang are letting everybody out, you know, darling Willow have a confrontation. Willow throws holy water on her. Xander confronts Jesse and he's holding the stake on him and he can't quite make himself do it. And then a random passerby bumps Jesse into the stake and it, you know, it dusts him right there. And Buffy takes on Luke. And I, I mean, this is one of my favorite moments when Buffy takes on Luke. That's a great fight on that stage. Yeah, it's really cool. I like a lot of the dialogue that they have between each other. You know, Buffy's fighting off his minions and as uh, Luke is, you know, he shows his, um, uh, Luke really shows really shows the kind of ego that it takes to be the, in his thing, where he's going on, you know, feeding the master. Once Buffy comes in, that's all he can focus on. He wants the big dog, and the big dog in the room is Buffy. So he, instead of keeping the master going, he decides he needs to take on the Slayer and defeat the Slayer before doing anything else, and that's really his downfall. And uh, an excellent fighting scene between them. There's the great line in which uh, you where it comes to the end of Luke when Buffy says, uh, "You forgot about something." Throws a symbol <coughs> stand through the roof, and in comes this light. And she says, "Sunlight." And he starts going like he's going to die. The sunlight's killing him. Ah, and then she says, it's in about nine hours, and then stakes him. Just a great, great... Oh, yeah. I mean, it, Yeah, and great line for her to you. Nine hours, yeah. moron. Block, and then he, he stumbles forward and off the stage with this look on his face like, I cannot believe I fell right. for that. And it, and it's all over, you know. And we haven't even talked about this, Brian. The way vampires die in this, the dustings, you know, they just they just evaporate. And I think it was a great thing. I mean, Joss Whedon has said the reason we have dustings is because we didn't need our 16-year-old hero cleaning up the bodies at the end of every right. episode. And, and that's great. But I love it. It's a great effect. And especially, they, they evolve it through, through time. But Luke's dusting is is big and powerful and it's just it's so neat you get the idea that the bigger and badder the vampire the bigger and badder the dusting yeah and also the harder it is to kill them as well um but yes Mm -hmm. dusting is my favorite part of the buffy the vampire slayer series um the movie really left a sour note where they just basically uh got killed and keeled over and like joss whedon said we don't want to have our our teachers our our students cleaning up the bodies afterwards it just doesn't make any sense so coming up with dusting was genius move and just to, it's a cool effect i mean you they they start off with just you know the stake in and all of a sudden poof they're in air later in the season you see some skeletons which is awesome and uh overall it mm-hmm. just gives you a really neat effect when someone when a vampire is dying oh yeah and, and i mean it, it's they use all kinds of different wood to stake people you know i mean it's it can be a pencil it can be a pool cue it can be a broken table leg it can be a tree 
uh, uh, limb. It, any, anything wooden gets used. And, and Buffy shows herself as this very resourceful fighter. You know, she will grab anything and everything and sling it at you and get you off your game with her little puns and the banter. You know, I always took the banter with her as that's her way to distract them and, and get them to not, you know, pay attention. And that's how she got him distracted just for that one second because that's all it took. And then she knew she had what it took to take him out. And I, I, it, was, it was a genius way to set her up. We also get something in there about Slayer Power that he does this whole thing. He's killed a couple of three people here at this point. And he says, you know, once I drink of you, it'll be over. And you get the idea that Slayer Blood has got some kick. Absolutely. Here. Well, it, it's almost like uh, it's, well, it's like her power. She has more power to her. Maybe her blood gives more of a high. And I think actually it's addressed later in the uh, series where uh, by uh, yeah. another character that will come on who says basically that, you know, drinking the Slayer's blood gives you a bigger high than anyone else. So, yeah. Yeah, it's all that mystical energy and all this stuff that, that's infused in it for sure. I mean, two great episodes to start this show with. I, I got to tell you, pilot episodes sometimes leave you wanting a little bit. I'll tell you, these two have always been very satisfying for me, Brian. I think when we look at what these things accomplish, I mean, this is easy. It sets up the whole Buffy world for us in you know an hour and a half because you put two 45-minute episodes together. That's what we've got. And, and it establishes all you know, a lot of the rules for vampires, for slayers, for watchers, what the Hellmouth is, what Sunnydale's going to be like who these other people are like, and, and even the mass hysteria and the blind eyes that most people take. You, Xander has that great line at the end of the fight at the bronze, like, well, tomorrow, no one's going to be the same. And they go back to school, or Monday, no one's going to be the same. They go back to school, and everybody's like, it must have been yeah. a gang, you know? And, you know, you should have been there. And, it's, and he's like, I can't believe it, you know? and it's it, that, But that kind of uh, neurosis, it, it, they play with that a lot in this series. All that gets set up in these two episodes. That's why these are so darn important. Yeah, very important and awesome. I agree. These are really good episodes. And these really, if you watch these and don't get hooked on the show, then it's not going to be for you. But these are really good intros to what the series is going to be about, what characters you're going to be paying attention to, and really uh, what they're going to show you throughout the whole thing. And I loved it. It definitely sets up the rules for everything. It sets up how each character, their piece is important to the puzzle in the end. And it's really good. So uh, let's move into what we think is very important in these two episodes and things that you need to uh, pay attention to. I think the first thing that I would would say about this is um, go back and listen to Giles's uh, history of Sunnydale that he gives talking about, and we've mentioned it over yeah. and over again, but really go back and really pay attention to that because it really does tell you, you know, how the Hellmouth formed, how, the master became what it is, how vampires and demons came to be, how the Slayer was was came to be, and why they're so important in the world. It really throws everything together and sets the stage for what we're going to see from Sunnydale and from these characters going forward. So that's probably my most important piece of this whole two-part ep- two uh, episode here, is watch Giles's history of Sunnydale, and you'll learn a whole lot about what's going to happen. 
that and I think you got to pick up on the things about the characters that are revealed through their dialogue and how they interact with each other. You you, you got to know who Buffy and Giles are clearly. You got to know who the master is. Um, you don't necessarily have to pay attention to some of the side characters we've talked about. You know, Buffy's mom and and Darla and Cordelia, people like that, and Principal Flutie. They're there for a purpose and they get more fleshed out as we go. But Xander and Willow are two other ones. You need to get to know those people. They're going to be part of the inner circle from the get go, and they have new nuances and things they do in these two episodes folks pay off through seven seasons they they really do and that's one of the best things about buffy the buffy show is that these writers are very aware of what they write it's about a dozen people that really wrote the whole show and we'll try to get more of their names in as we go through these things but they really they really pay attention to to how this thing works it's a tight unit and they constantly reference backward and forward across it and they pay attention to what they've set up and they there's really not a lot of portrayal of those things throughout time they they evolve people but they tend to stick with people as as they build them and and break them down and build them back up I think you got to hang on to these characters too and Absolutely. know who they are um as you're going forward and really for season 1 you watch these people evolve because by the end of season one, we've got everything set up that's really going to really going to change what happens over the next two years in season Absolutely. two and three. It's very very key, and also I think the other thing that's important too is to really get yourself in the frame of reference of this TV series and when it was actually released because we're looking at a pre dot com burst of the bubble here. This was before. Yeah. Uh, the internet was really huge. I mean, the internet was just starting to take off now. It isn't, it wasn't anywhere near what it is today. So when you see people like Willow hacking into systems and on the internet, that was a big deal then. It may happen all the time now, but that wasn't something you saw very often back in the day. So, um, no, there's that great thing where, you know, she, it, Giles is like, so public plans are available to everyone on the computer. And she says, well, if you accidentally hack the right. company, you know, and, and she's running like a, you know, a 486 running Windows yeah. 95. You know, I'm surprised it didn't like crash, you know, as, as part of a joke. There's also, there's a great one. Cordelia whips out a cell phone and the thing is like a brick. <laughs> yes. You know? You're going to you see know? some so, interesting stuff. So, in but that. yeah, you're, you're right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the technology of of the day and uh, of today is not present early on in this show, and it's kind of neat to go back and look at that time and remember what was life like before the Google. Yeah. You know, before they could figure all that out. You know, it's, you had to you had to go to the library and read. That's you know? true. And you see them researching in books. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how they learned everything. It yeah. wasn't readily yeah. available. And later, as we get into the seasons, that does become available because obviously they adapt with the times as well. But in these first few episodes, you're going to see a lot of things that you're going to be like, wow, what the heck? Where are we at in, in time? You know, and that's what it was like back then. So uh, it's a very interesting look at it, and I like that a lot. Um, before we get into rating this, uh, Jay, there's a couple things that I wanted to point out here that I thought were kind of interesting and maybe funny at the same time. Uh, in these early episodes, uh, when the vampires are in vamp mode and they start talking, I love it because you can totally tell they've got fake teeth in. They start talking like this. And oh, yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Ju Julie Benz as, as Darla barely can get her lines out while she's wearing the fangs. She's like, look, this exactly. one's pure. You know, I'm like, oh, a minute ago you were sexy, and now you have this kind of nerdy, I'm wearing my retainer list. You know, it's yeah. really what it felt like, you know, and it's – the only one who really doesn't suffer from it is is Mark Metcalf, and I don't know if it's how they made his 
or or what, and they knew he was going to have a lot of dialogue as the season went on, so it worked better for him. But even he'll yeah, slip I, every now and then. I think you that know? he just don't notice this as much because he's never not out of vamp mode. So I, maybe mm-hmm. you just don't notice. It. I noticed it when I watch him and I listen to him talk. I can hear the slurry or trying to talk through fake teeth type thing. I can hear it myself. So uh, maybe it's just that you don't notice it as much because he's always that character and that's just how he talks. Yeah. Uh, but you could see that. And the other thing I wanted to point out was an inconsistency in the writing here because if you'll notice when they're talking about going to the bronze at uh, on that Friday night – Cordelia makes a very big point to say that it's no cover Friday at the bronze. And then when the vampires are coming to take or to uh, attack the bronze or to take over the bronze and feed the vessel, what is there that you see? You see a bouncer sitting outside counting the cash that he's taken in from the night. So no, maybe, maybe, maybe it was no cover for the ladies. Maybe, maybe but it was wasn't made, uh, made to state it that way. So to me, it seemed a little weird mm-hmm. to have a bouncer counting the cash when it's a no cover Friday. <laughs> so, yeah, I think they, they just wanted a big dude at the door that this little girl who's Darla is, if she's not really much bigger than, than, uh, Julie Benz isn't much bigger than Sarah Michelle Geller. She just walks up to him and you just get the feeling that she sort of dispatches with him very, very quickly that there's, he's no problem to her. And, and, you know, her vampire strength is somewhat close to what Slayer's strength is. And so, yeah, they, they get rid of him. But you're right. That, there are little things like that that slip every now and then. For the most part, though, this is, it's incredibly tight writing throughout the series. And first episodes, uh, you know, you get the feeling in this one that they had to add a few things in to try to get two episodes full out of it. But even even so, it's still very entertaining. Very Absolutely. Entertaining. Very good episodes. And you're going to get some really funny lines in here. To, couple that I wanted to mention with Cordy, um, they really wanted to make her a real big, ditzy, uh, mean girl, right? And here's a couple lines that she says I think that are worth noting. Uh, she's talking and she says, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, yeah, car. That was kind of an odd <laughs> one. And then the next one was, not yeah. because it's expensive, but because it costs more. That was another good line. Yeah, she... Yeah, they, they 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 build her up as so shallow and so cheesy. I mean, he, and you know, she blows Jesse off a lot in this episode. I mean, he has a, Eric Balfour's best line in the whole time he's on the show is, you know, if you need a shoulder to cry on or, or just a nibble on, you know, it, it, there's that whole bit. And then when he becomes a vampire, he goes back to the bronze, of course, after her, and and she's like, "Get away from me, you dork!" And he's like, "Shut up." And she's like, well, okay, yeah. one dance, you know, and it's like, you know, he put her in her place quick. And yeah, they do play Cordelia as, as kind of shallow and ditzy early on in the show. And that's really her role. I mean, you know, it, it works. And I do like at the very end here, too, that, you know, they come back to school and nobody's buying it. And Giles is going, you know, we have no idea what we're going to face next. Who knows, you know? And they're all going, well, you know, this way maybe I don't have to go to chemistry. They're still talking right. like kids in high school. You know, above, above all these problems they've got, they also got to go to chemistry. Absolutely. It really brings it back to uh, the reality of the situation. They're in high school. That is probably more scary to them than these vampires are. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a great point. Brian, we're at the point now where we're going to do a thing we do at the end of end of these episodes. We're going to give a rating. And, and different than our Continuous Play Podcast movie ratings, we, we came up with one very specific for the Buffy worlds. We're going to rate things on a scale of one to four dustings. Of course, one would be kind of the low end and four would be the high end. So how do you rate Welcome to the Hellmouth and the Harvest in, in our Well, as we get through this series, you're going to not see a whole lot of fours in here because those are meant for the most outstanding episodes. But I'm going to give this a four only because it really is a great introduction to the series and you really have to see it to to get involved in it if you don't see it you kind of are left asking a lot of questions that these two episodes will answer for you if you do watch them so i give it a four i think it's well worth i think you have to watch it if you're going to get into buffy at all and they're good episodes i think as a whole they really do a lot for this series as far as character development, story, plots, uh, backgrounds, all that stuff is right here. And so for me, it's a four. What about you, Jay? I, I give it a four as well for the same reasons, Brian. This sets up everything. They're so important. You know, as someone who started watching Buffy after this had aired, I had those questions. And a, a friend of mine who's a big Buffy fan happened to have this on video cassette. It wasn't released. He had just taped it with his VCR, you know. So he loaned it to me, and I watched it, and, and it answered so much. It caught me up even before I saw everything else that was in between where I had picked up on the show. It, it explained enough that I knew who everybody was and where we were going with it. And I, I'm like, you i think you you watch these two things and you're either hooked on this thing or you're not and and i think these are an excellent introduction and hook and there's so much stuff here so much stuff that we didn't even talk about that is going to play out not only this season but for the the six seasons to come after and even up until the very last episode there are things they still hang on to and work with that are set up here this is a this is one of those rare ones it is a four dustings for me and it's a very very important set of Absolutely episodes excellent, excellent television, television. Folks, we thank you for joining us on this podcast here. And listen, if you have uh, comments you'd like to share with us, we'd appreciate it. Go to our website, click on the forums link that you see there, and leave us a comment underneath the thread you see for the episodes. And hey, if you've downloaded this file off iTunes or Zoom, leave us a review. We appreciate it. Check back again soon on continuousplaypodcast.com slash Buffy for the next episode in the Art of Slaying a Buffy the Vampire Slayer retrospective. For Holly, Brian, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Continuous Play. Buffy the Vampire Slayer is the copyright of Fox Television Studios and any discussion of the characters, episodes, or music is strictly for entertainment purposes only. 